brought to you by Prep Matters and the book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. I, I make it known, you know, your mother loved you, your father loved you. So, so love wasn't the issue. And so, I mean, my father loved us and my I remember my grandmother was so mad at me one day. I don't know what happened, but she's like, you know, your dad, you know, says he loves you guys, but like, he doesn't really do anything for you. And, and, and that's all the language she had. So she couldn't take it a step further and say, love is more than just someone telling you that they love you. Love is a verb. It's, it's not just something that someone is saying to you. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is author and memoirist Nefertiti Austin. Nefertiti writes about the erasure of diverse voices in motherhood in the critically claimed Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. Her work around this topic has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. She was the subject of an article on race and adoption in The Atlantic and has appeared on television and radio programs, including The Today Show and 1A with Joshua Johnson. Nefertiti is a proud adoptive parent of two children and lives in Los Angeles. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, I love this book. Um, it was great. What was the most fun part about writing this? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think being able to step back and maybe look at my life as opposed to thinking about stuff like, you know, you have your memories in your mind. So it was it was something else to see it on the paper. Like I've lived that life. Like that's that's my story. You know, and I will say, I don't know that I've read a book about adoption. So this was um, and and as you talk about black adoption being really uh, different from from um, more formal adoption. Can you talk about that for just a moment? I thought that was uh, for me, it was really interesting. Oh, definitely. So typically in the black community, we look within. So um, I was a product of what I like to call black adoption because my brother mm -hmm. and I were raised by grandparents. So no lawyers, no social workers, you know, none of that. It was really grandparents, all four of them, sitting down and having a discussion about who best and who was available to raise my brother and I. And so that's typically how it goes down. You know, grandma, grandparents or older aunts and uncles will make a decision. And that decision is binding within our families. And whoever takes on the role, whether it's a cousin or an aunt or grandparent, that person is then essentially the parent and that person or those people make all of the decisions regarding education or vacation or medical, that sort of thing. And so we and, and mostly we start in internally and then it expands from there. It might be children on the block. It might be children who go to your church. It might be 
a friend of a friend, but there's always a known entity involved as opposed to the formal foster care system where you don't know anybody. You don't know the parents, you don't know the children, and it's a it's truly an unknown adventure. And so for us, it's definitely just more of a multi-generational um, internal experience. In your book, you, you talk about some of the specifics of your experience um, and of Black communities generally, right? Mm -hmm. One thing you talk about, though, that there are ways that, that straight white parents don't always support those who do adopt, you know, unless there's kind of a white savior things going on, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about the intentionality of the family that you've built doing this in ways that are different than perhaps other Black mothers might have? You know, the path that you've chosen and, and um, you know, why, why that's kind of a Black story and perhaps a universal one as well. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. I think that for me, I I made a a choice based upon my upbringing, and I didn't kind of put all of that together until actually I was writing Motherhood to White. Mm -hmm. I really could draw a line from, oh, this is something that my family has done, so it's not a big deal. But it was a big deal because I went outside of my family to, you know, quote unquote, have children and. So my family was concerned again, you know, again, oh, you know, who are these kids? You don't know them. My mother was like, oh, well, does this mean you won't have your own kids? And my response to her was any child who comes into my home is my child. And it was ironic that she would ask that question when she didn't raise us. So that, you know, that's a whole nother uh, can of worms that gets opened for a woman who, you know, didn't raise her children. And mm. so I think that because we tend to do it internally there aren't really records we're not tracked in terms of like how many black families whether it's single or married couple adopts the way white families are or lgbtq families are and so it creates this myth that black people do not adopt and when you talk mm. about resources for adoptive children yes there are resources you know like crazy however there aren't necessarily specific resources geared towards like same race adoptions. So there, there aren't resources available for same race adoption if they're done outside of the formal structure of adoption? No, even within the formal structure. So like, so for instance, um, there are lots of books on, you know, obviously how to adopt. We got that. And then because of the prevalence of transracial adoption, there's more support for transracially adoptive families. And that's in the literature um, and even expectations in the educational setting because it isn't a thing until the kids are in school. And so I remember when my son was, I don't know, second, third grade, whatever, and they had to do like the whole family tree thing. Uh, there was a white family who had adopted a child from Ethiopia. So she was armed. She was like, okay, instead of a tree, how about we do a forest? Well, I never heard of that. And I even went back through to see like, oh, how do you have this conversation with the teacher, especially when you look like the kids? Mm -hmm. And so then it's a whole disclosure thing about, oh, and by the way, you know, we are an adoptive family and my child is black and I'm black, but he didn't come for me. So this whole family tree thing isn't going to work. And so that's <laughs> what I mean. so like, so even something as simple as that, it can be a thing, you know, for kids, um, you know, that's for sure. Yeah. So for me, one of the most interesting parts of the book, and I and I imagine probably the hardest parts for you as a parent is what to share with your children and, and when. And this is true for all families, right? And your biological parents and my biological parents had some similarities, including substance use disorders. And so one of the challenges that I have had with my kids is when do I share 
this stuff, right? Okay. But I think there's a universal lesson in here. What's in terms of you want to be open, you want to be honest, you want to be transparent, but you also want to share information with kids when it's the right time, when it's a source of, of bringing us together, not scaring a kid. Do, do you have kind of a guiding principle of, you know, w- when's the right time to talk about mom, who, you know, and, and her problems with, with drugs mm-hmm. or, you know, how unusual our family structure is compared to what you might be seeing in, in books and television? Definitely. Um, it has to be age appropriate, of course. Yeah. And so I started early. So the first sort of big question is adoption. Like, when do you tell a Mm -hmm. child that they are adopted? So I started super early before the kids were even fully verbal. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted them to have it just in their soul that they knew that they were adopted. And that that was a great thing, that they are loved and they are wanted. And so that was sort of the first kind of big conversation. And then over time, as they got older, they started asking questions about, well, why? And so then the next sort of, of thing I said was, um, well, your parents weren't ready to be parents and to be a parent means you take your kids to school every day, you provide a roof for them, you provide, you know, food and shelter. And there's all of these responsibilities that adults have when they are taking care of children and they weren't able to do so. I love how you ground that in practical considerations. Because you can imagine the 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 sort of whispering voices of self doubt, you know, that I wasn't loved enough, and that's why, right. you know. Right. And I love how practical you make that. Well, I make them. I, I make it known, you know, your mother loved you, your father loved you. So, so love wasn't the issue. And so, I mean, my father loved us, and my I remember my grandmother was so mad at me one day. I don't know what happened, but she's like, you know, your dad you know, says he loves you guys, but like, he doesn't really do anything for you. And, and, and that's all the language she had. So she couldn't take it a step further and say, love is more than just someone telling you that they love you. Love looks like I'm getting up and going to work, making sure that you are provided for. I'm the nurse, you know, I'm the referee. I'm all of these things to you because I want to be these things to you. And this is what love is. Love is a verb. It's, it's not just something yeah. that someone is saying to you. And so that was, I didn't understand. I got it later and that, you know, and it impacted even like the guys I dated and it was kind of a, my dad all over again. It's like these, these dudes are saying yeah. this stuff, but there's no follow-up. And so yeah. I want to, um, so with my kids, help them to understand what does love look like? And even when people love, love, love you, sometimes they have diseases, you know, whether it's drug abuse or maybe they have mental health issues or whatever that prevents them from showing up in the way they would want to show up for you. And and these were things I had to really work on for myself because I was talking to them, but I'm also talking to myself about like my mother would have been there if she could have been. My dad, you know, would have been there if he could have been. And um mm. So as not to, I don't want them to grow up kind of like how I did, you know, having um, feelings about their parents. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. There's um, it's in a in in DBT dialectical behavior therapy. Boy, that's hard for me to say. That's why I say DBT. Um, the kind of guiding principle that everybody's doing the best that they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And we may need more to get a different outcome, but they're doing the best. And and uh, I was really struck by how both sensitively and honestly you talked about 
your biological parents' struggles. Mm-hmm. It's not hagiography. You don't whitewash it. You don't, you know, it's, it's a hard look at the hard things, mm-hmm. but also not, you know, pointing fingers. It, it felt like this great compassion and love for people who, by sort of um, objective measures, kind of didn't do what they were air quotes supposed to do. Did you always feel that? I mean, how do you, are you that compassionate about people who in many ways, you know, their best wasn't quite what it should have been? Right. Um, No, I had to really grow into that. I think maturity had a lot to do with it. Becoming a mother had a lot to do with it. The parenting classes that I took to become a foster parent, you know, also had a lot to do with me kind of taking judgment off the table. And then when I was in law school going to the therapist and she was saying, you know, you got to see your mother as like an older sister or or like a cousin or an aunt who visits from time to time. And you get Mm -hmm. to decide where to put her in your life. And the best gift she gave me was she said, you're waiting for her to comfort that little girl inside of you. She can't do that. That's that's for you to do. And it took me some years to be able to comfort that little girl inside of me. And then I didn't have to be uh, and, and we didn't have like big fights or anything. I just wouldn't talk to her. So I had to really work through. <laughs> it's effective. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just, it makes sense. Um, yeah, you got to protect uh, yourself first. Yeah. And so I could um, lower my guard in a way. And so then when the kids came, I was able to allow her to share. And I mean, she lived out of state, but when she would come, I was able to allow her to really be grandma. And I had to make peace with, she's fun grandma. Like, and that's, she's fun girl. She was that fun chick when she was young. Like, that's who she is. And that's cool. And then with my dad, because he was around, though he was incarcerated most of my life, um, yeah. I think I felt, well, at least he didn't leave us. So I didn't have the same sort of um, judgment and hard feelings towards him. Now, I wonder, though, had he lived, I I, he would have gotten his turn. Like, I just don't think he, he had a, I had a chance to get my words together where he would have had an earful for me. Like, dude, like, <laughs> you know, that wasn't, that was not cool. Not at all. So we didn't get to it, but uh, I definitely, um, and all of my thousands of jobs I've had in, in working with, um, young people or working with people who've had issues with the system and they they're trying and they just can't seem to get it together has built up that compassion muscle one thing that was interesting you you talk about your dad and how brilliant he was Mm -hmm. and what a historian he was and what a scholar he was Mm -hmm. but because of the life that he lived the circumstances was in the ways that you know the structure of society was was aligned against him he ended up with a career that was decidedly not that and didn't play to those, didn't play to those gifts. Um, and it's because um, this would have been, I guess, in the in the 80s, in the height of, you know, the, the you know, tough on tough on crime and putting everyone away for a million years for oh, yeah. for dealing. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah. And he his his career with. uh with law enforcement and going to jail, like that started like really early. Like he was a, I think, was I a little, I don't think I was born yet. I don't know if he'd met my mom yet, but he was a student. Uh, UCLA had a program, I think it was called the High Potential Program or something in the 60s. And he was part of this program. And and then on his way to school, one day gets stopped and arrested. So, you know, there was so, there were 
opportunities and then he got derailed and then just never got back on track for, you know, any number of reasons, but mainly between the drug abuse and the incarceration just could not pull it together. When I think about that experience, what you know in the back of your head, and you talk about this with your son of, oh, how do you say this? Um, wanting to protect his childhood as mm-hmm. long as you can and allow him to be a child for as long as you can, but knowing full well that there's a world outside of your home, his home there, you know, your, his family's home that isn't going to see him as a child as long as they should be able to see him as a child and all the much like your dad and we'd like to think things are moving in a better direction than, but, but, but that, that won't see him as a child when he makes, when he does childish things, mm-hmm. how, um, again, this probably goes back to, you know, the question before, how do you balance when to start telling him, you know, not, all white people are going to see you as the beautiful little boy that I see you, but they're going to see you as someone who is up to no good. Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, that started early. That started in kindergarten. And um, it started because, you know, it was my choice. I put him in a private school, predominantly white school. And while everyone was lovely and friendly and kind, there were all the micro aggressions, all the biases showed up relatively quickly, and I was slow to catch what was happening. Um, Mm. And we lived in Beverly Hills at the time. And, you know, and so because it's our neighborhood, that's where our grocery shop, we did this, that, you know, so then like, okay, when we're at the store, I need you to stay next to me. And, you know, kids go through the age where they want to hang out in the toy aisle. And so, am I allowed to to look at the toys, mom? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so it was, it was awful to say, you know, first it was no, and then please, 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 okay, fine. But listen, you may not touch anything, and this is why you may not touch anything because you are a black boy, and the assumption is that you are going to take something out of this store without paying for it. And I don't want you to be accused of that. I don't want to have to deal with that. So please do not touch anything. So those conversations have to start very early. And it's definitely a burden that parents of black children have. And it's, it's to keep them safe. So this whole fear thing kicks up really, really quickly. And I'm speaking from my experience, but even Mm -hmm. especially after a George Floyd murder and all of that, and um, talking with my friends, um, black and white friends, but black friends in particular. And I mean, we were tired. I mean, you know, talk about like the, this, the fatigue, the, it's not compassion fatigue, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's like, well, black people have it too. Like we're tired and we don't want to talk about (laughs) it, but, but we have no choice because if we don't talk about it, then our children are not equipped emotionally. And so that's the thing. I mean, of course, we want to keep them safe physically, but emotionally, we want to really protect them and make sure that they're safe so that they can thrive in the world and be empathetic and compassionate and to be happy, you know, well-adjusted people. It's a great point. And sort of following up on that, I, again, I'm sort of struck by you, you, at the end of your book, you, you write something like, uh, I basically wrote myself out of a narrative about drug addiction, abandonment, and, you know, black experience. And if you only read the part about your biological parents, Mm -hmm. you would predict 
you know, stereotypes of all terrible things, right? And yet here we are, you know, this incredible writer, two wonderful kids. And when we think about the sort of the the healing that is involved in that, one thing that parents in books is authors often sort of avoid talking about healing themselves, but you really embrace that. I mean, how much of that do you, I guess it's maybe a little bit of everything, you know, the therapist you had in law school, mm-hmm. um, your loving grandparents, you know, friends, do you have advice for, I guess this could be for any, for anyone, your kids, you know, do you have advice for people where there is either because of experience in their life or trauma that's an intergenerational of the, the things that you suggest or have seen to help us, you know, help people get, if they're in a hard place, get to a better place? Definitely. I, you know, every generation, you know, you say you're not going to do what your parents did. And often that's a setup <laughs> just to repeat patterns. And so I thought okay, version of Groundhog Day, right? Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, so now I've got two children not raised by either parents. So this very much mirrors my experience and how to ensure that they grow up having compassion so that if they decide to have their own children and they're always like, should we adopt? And I'm like, well, if you want to, you know, the choice is yours. Um, So, and we're going to make sure that we don't vilify anybody in the process. And also I learned what my grandparents didn't know is that every, my grandparents raised five kids and we're all night and day. My aunt and I are kind of similar just in terms of being the most responsible out of the five, but, but we're different people and we, but we were parented the same, which they didn't know was not the right thing to do. So I think one way to disrupt patterns is to really focus on each child and see them as individuals. And then you kind of follow their lead to some degree and work. So I try to work within the parameters of who they are. I mean, we've got some universal rules, of course, in the house, but I'm clear that my son and daughter are very similar, but they have very different temperaments and they have, um, and their trajectories are going to be different. And I'm fine with that. So I'm not trying to force everybody into the same box. And I think that that's one way to help um, break patterns and uh, to remember, I, I have a friend who's sandwiched and she's got it her dad's got Alzheimer's and her mom is in denial. And that's, I feel for her and her sister and brother are useless. And her daughter is 11, driving her nuts. And so the other day she was on fire and she, and she, and she, when she got through, I said, you know, you've got all this other stress that's going on and you're putting that on your daughter. So that's not, that's not the right thing to do. So, so who's going to help you like step back and will you get therapy so that you can talk through your issues. That's also something in the black community we're coming around to, but we're not real big on therapy. And in a city like Los Angeles, where our numbers are small, there are not a lot of black therapists here. So for us, Mm. you know, we can't go tell, don't tell white people your business, you know, so we're very insular in that. And we're very private when it comes to that, when the truth is, we need help. So that's another way that you can break patterns would be to seek a professional and get some help beyond what the church says or what your mom yeah, says. Yeah. Um, so there are tools that are available. I just think um, you don't always stop long enough to just ask, you know, is this about me? Um, yeah. Is this a pattern? Um, my grandparents were so worried that I was going, my brother and I would turn out like our parents that they were strict. And 
then and now I felt like it was unnecessary because I was a very driven kid. Like I wasn't going to do drugs. I wasn't interested. So they didn't have to be so strict, but they were so worried about it. Because I tend to say that most people, including children, want their lives to work out. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good, really good point about, um, about having black, you know, caregivers, right? You know, of, you know, whether therapists or doctors. Yeah. I also love that point about uh, um, individual differences. I have a, a dear, dear friend who's probably 20 years older than I am. And she grew up in an Irish Catholic enclave outside of Boston. And her first job when she was in high school was working for, at, a, at an orphanage for children, oh, you know, okay. so these babies. And her job was simply to go after school and walk around and pick up each baby and hold them. Oh, wow. And she would get chastised because nurse so-and-so or mother so-and-so, whoever sister so-and-so would say, you spent too much time with that one. And my friend Kathleen simply said, that one needed more. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Some, some, some just need more. And some like, and I, hashtag, I got this. I'm good. Another one's a whole lot more. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, and it's, it's, that was, I think a lot of my dad's issues too. Um, his dad, my grandfather was a Marine, so he was definitely, you know, very law and order and uh, very much a provider and a man's man, all of that. And my father was an artist and, you know, <laughs> looking at his son, like what is happening here? And my dad would have benefited like from the independent schools that my kids have been in and, you know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. type of nurturing, that sort of thing. But that was a different day. And, um, you know, some kids do need that. Other kids, not so much, but everyone's different. What it, well, and, you know, it's interesting because we know that the model, the best models of parenting are, are both high love and high discipline. So high, you know, high structure predictability. Um, and it sounds like the, uh, the the Marine grandfather had that discipline thing down in spades. Mm -hmm. So if I review back what I think you said, you kind of take that model of, you know, we, we have structure and love, but we bend it to where each child is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't grow up in a household where people were affectionate. Again, love was shown very differently. And so, but my kids, oh my God, especially my daughter, she's super affectionate. And so I've, I mean, my son kind of broke me in and then she's taken me the rest of the way. So um, I'm definitely far more affectionate than I used to be because I'd be happy just to kind of wave at you. You're like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I, you know, be happy to see you, but I didn't need to hug you. But I've, I've grown. You know, we all have the capacity to grow to be better. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, I would be. Uh, I'm at the other end. I'm. I, I overshare and over, over the affection. <laughs> I'm sure my poor kids are like, Dad, just stop with it. But, uh, oh, that's funny. Well, that's wonderful. And, how, and what are your kids most into right now? My uh, daughter likes to draw. She's a maker. I mean, you give her some dental floss and a gum wrapper and she's off to the races. So anything that she can do with her hands, she's very much a maker and she ice skates. And my son is, he plays lacrosse Now he's played on and off since kindergarten and he played baseball forever, but he's like this new person. Now he's like, mom, um, I want to play in college and I, I think I want to play lacrosse professionally. And I'm like, who's this kid? And he's out in the backyard in the dark practicing and telling me how he wants to go to Yale and all of these IVs. And I'm like looking at his report card, like, really? 
okay, well, we'll see <laughs> what happens. So, and, and of course, video games, typical. Wow. Wow. I, there's a line in, in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, and um, writing partner Bill Stickstrud had a parent who was talking to him and he said, the coolest thing about having kids and teens especially is watching them decide who they want to be. Mm-hmm. I would agree. It sounds, it sounds like your son is right there now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So they're fun. I mean, they get on my nerves, but they're fun. That's part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> they're good at their well, job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. Uh, well, it is it is such a pleasure to have you. I, I uh, I'm so um, I'm so impressed by the courage that it took for you to be a single mom adopting these two wonderful kids and and giving them the wonderful life that you've given them and and giving to us this wonderful book about the story, uh, the adventure, the narrative that you all have had together. It's pretty um. It's pretty cool. No, thank you. Well, thank you for this. And um, well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to stop there because I will prattle on for another 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.